I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Nothing will stop the Satanic total release. Bart, stop testing Satan. Welcome to the place. We are so sick of the question, why Satan? We named a podcast after it. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the podcast. Now, I did take an extra week off of my normal every other week default. And the reason for that is, some of you may know, I am going to try to go to Canada to see my girlfriend after the 9th. Specifically, I'm going to go on the 12th. So I'm unsure if there's actually going to be a show for those three weeks or so I'm away. It's more like two weeks, but because of all the math and everything, it's going to be close to 15 days. But the stress of figuring everything out on what I needed to do to that trip had me a wreck last week. And I just didn't feel in the mood to do anything that required any sort of work after I put all that work in because it is tricky to go to Canada still. It takes a bunch of different things. So that's why there wasn't a podcast last week. And so before I move on to a few other things, I'm going to give a rundown of today's podcast. First, there's a little shout out that I want to give to someone who I want to give a link to a story their brother wrote. So that's going to be in the description. I'm going to talk about it in a segment. Next, we're going to touch on the next chapter of Introduction to Romantic Satanism by Michael Osiris Snuffin, which is cool because he actually sent me an email, which I'll talk about that in there. Next, we're going to talk about bodily autonomy and the vaccine. I have some really, you could say, thoughts on that one. After that, someone sent me questions. Well, a few people sent me questions, and I'm going to answer them. One of them towards the end is the longest one, which is someone decided that I was a good person to ask about white privilege. So I answered it to the best of my ability, and if I fucked it up and didn't do very well, let me know and tell me what I could do to improve. And that will be the show for today. Next that I want to talk about, though, is a few segments and different ideas that I'm planning on looking into, debating, talking to myself, and just putting segments on about. One, I ran across uh, a YouTube that talked about our museum's ethical and I want to kind of jump into that. I'm, I was educated in history, so that's something I've never really thought about before. And part of the reason why that YouTube video was made is they were looking at the Black Panther movie when someone from Wakanda breaks into a museum and says, that is my ancestor's property. That doesn't belong to you, and takes it. And honestly, they're not wrong. Should museums have this stuff? really good debate another segment because i like learning weird cool shit i'm thinking about just having a segment now and then of just weird shit i learned and just sort of like go through a rundown of weird stuff i learned and where i learned it because why not i like weird stuff like the other day i spent i think probably a good hour on learning about sinkholes and why they form i don't know why It just sparked my interest, so I looked into it. And because I spent so much time on that, I figure may as well make it part of the podcast because I think this stuff's cool. Oddly enough, the thing on potholes was actually kind of cool. So feel free to look it up. It's kind of (laughs) cool. Anyway, so that's some of my ideas. I'm going to try to like throw out different ideas 
Uh, oh, the other thing that I want to talk about eventually is I do journaling. Specifically, I do a very, very altered version of bullet journaling. And I think journaling's kind of helped me, like, de-stress my brain. And I kind of want to have a segment or a segment or two, or maybe like a weekly mini segment, not weekly, but whenever I'm able to put a show out, where I talk about my process of satanic journaling, I guess. And maybe it will help someone set up their own journal or figure out a way that a journal will work for them. Me, I use pen and a notebook because I can't get apps to do exactly what I want. So I like being able to draw boxes and lines and things like that. So before I ramble on anymore, let's move on to the rest of the topics for today. I like to give air to people now and then. And part of that is because, honestly, a lot of you who are listening likely are doing so because someone else suggested this podcast. And so I like to give back sometimes. So, I saw someone post a horror story that their brother wrote in one of the satanic Discord servers that I'm in. They posted it there noting that it's not directly satanic, but they hope that people give it a chance and maybe actually have some interest in it. Now, at the very time that they posted this, I was actually thinking about doing stuff like this. Like, uh, using my podcast to actually, like, help other people's works if they're not quite sure how to get it out there. So... I asked for a summary of the story, and they gave it to me as I wanted out of their brother's words. And the summary is as follows. A short story following the tragic and unnatural events of a widower living through his first anniversary without his wife. Now, one of the reasons why when I saw this story it stuck with me is actually kind of personal. But I actually want to thank the person for sort of giving me an avenue to talk about this. Because sometimes I like to talk about things that bother me in my podcast to help me get them out. Sort of like journaling, but not quite. And this is related to part of the reason why I get so annoyed when people tell me that I just want to be a non-theist because I want to sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Sinning is actually an awesome perk of being a non-theist, especially a non-theist Satanist. It has a lot of perks. Guiltless fun being probably at the top. Or not exactly the top, but it does rank quite up there but it does have its downsides and they can be troubling and part of that problem is i know that one day me and my girlfriend even once we're living together married all of that no matter how well things work out one day one of us are going to wake up and understand that one of us aren't there and it's something that i'm painfully aware of and it bothers me I'm going to be 37 in a few weeks. And trust me, I've done some mental math, even though I really didn't want to. And every year that passes that I'm not with her is just a knife. And really, believing in an afterlife is something that probably would ease this pain. Like, no joke. Like, this bothers me. And it is just horrible. And honestly, if I was... A meaner person, and I can be kind of harsh, but I don't think I'd go this far, I don't think, unless they really made me angry, is informing them that they only believe in God to make the existential dread stop. But the reason I don't say that is because I I couldn't. It'd be just being an ass. And secondly, I, I don't know what's in their head, so I can't tell them why they believe. And I think that's something 
to take into consideration when someone comes at you saying you want to be a non-believer because you can sin really there's some pretty like there's a lot of horrible like stuff about the whole belief system just like not even just like the rules and what comes of it but just the belief system of itself but yeah it's there's some parts of it that are comforting and the fact that we sort of turn away from that because we want to believe what's true and not comforting gives me a little bit of comfort when I think about this stuff. And, you know, I, I think about that a lot and it bothers the hell out of me. It sucks when I think about this stuff. And honestly, me being open publicly like this is actually helping me because I've never actually expressed these feelings to anyone before. I've not actually even expect, expressed them to my girlfriend. And so I want to thank uh, the person who posted this and their brother for actually giving me an opportunity while giving them an opportunity to talk about that. And it, it helps. It's talking about things can help, but afterwards you kind of get flummoxed and that's the state I'm in right now. So I'm going to take a break and then we'll come back to some future me will tell you in the intro what's coming after this. My brain is broken right now. Uh, sorry. Thank. Uh, yeah. Welcome back to the slowest reading of the book Introduction to Romantic Satanism by Michael Osiris Snuffin. All joking aside, it's actually been really fun going through the text with this level of slowness since I've really started to absorb it. I've been able to think, uh, look at my notes, review them, think about things a different way than I would when I breeze through this. So to me, it's actually kind of cool. The other cool thing that happened was I was actually contacted by the author of the book. He wanted to let me know that it was awesome that I was talking about it, and he thanked me. But as awesome as that was, along with actually thanking me, he also offered to clear up some of Burke's discussion of the sublime. And as any of you know who listened to me before, that gave me a headache. So he told me he knew it was going to be something that was going to be a little hard for readers to grasp because Burke uses language that is not the same as we use it today, particularly when he's sort of talking to other writers and other poets and other people in this time who knew exactly what he was talking about. When Burke apparently talks about terror and horror, in the context he means more awe and anxiety, particularly when these feelings are aroused by grandeur and the untamed wildness of nature. The example the author gave me was going to see the Rocky Mountains. He noted that that would be a sublime experience, because they're so big and they make you feel just incredibly small. And you understand that there's a danger with them. And the smallest minuscule shift of a boulder or landslide, and you're done. That's the end of you. So there is some sort of terror in that confronting nature and just seeing how powerful it is and just feeling just in awe of that. He actually did note to me as well that he plans on having another addition to Romantic Satanism because he wants to go deeper into the text and make things like 
Burke's explanation more clearer, which to me sounds really cool. And I will say, as much as I was confused about that, again, this book does a really good job of not dumbing down. Dumbing down is not the right word, but talking about it in a way that uh, Children of Satan doesn't. Children of Satan is very academic, and I love it. I love how in-depth it is, but wow, it's a tough read. When, when we get to it, we'll get to it. I'm not going to be able to break it down as minutely as I can this book because that book is gigantic. It is like, I think it's bigger than two books of the Lord of the Rings trilogy combined. I think I did some math and it was something like that when I was talking to uh, Rayla about it. But yeah, no, it, it's probably about two books of the Lord of the Rings. It's gigantic. But anyway, let's move on to this actual chapter. So the first thing we learn about is William Blake. He's the first major author of the Romantic Satanists. By many, he's viewed as one of the greatest English poets just ever. Alongside that, he's known for his engravings in Dante's Inferno, Paradise Lost, and the Bible. Blake was an interesting man, and he had interesting perspectives. His view on Jesus was that he was a gifted prophet, but he wasn't the Son of God. William Blake also believed that he had visions, of which he wrote about in some of his books. One of his most well-known works in Romantic Satanism, however, was titled The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And in this chapter, we learn that it is a collection of poems, short stories, things like that. We also learn that the book, in fact, was a response to another book titled Heaven and Hell by a scientist and self-proclaimed mystic. Now, this chapter goes into a lot of segments of Blake's work, and I'm not going to go through them all. It's really extensive, and as I've said before, I highly suggest you pick up this book. It's pretty cheap. It's good. It's a quick read if you want it to be a quick read, unlike me. But to make a long story short, Blake was interested in this author who wrote Heaven and Hell, but had a falling out with them around the 1790s. As part of this falling out, Blake attacks angels as boastful, as they believe that only they are wise. And he compares them and the author to a man carrying around a monkey on its back and believing that because he's wiser than the monkey, he's wiser than everyone else around him. As amusing as an insult that is today, I feel like that probably killed in the 17 and 1800s. The insults don't stop there, however. He continually goes after the church, the author, and other ideas of sacredness in this book. Blake particularly insults the priesthood, saying that they're the oppressors of the vulgar, and to him that's not a good thing. Blake makes the case that all deities actually come from human ideas, and that priests are not needed at all for spiritual development, which Satanists, I think we'd agree on that. Uh, when Satanists talk about something spiritual, even though a lot of us don't use that term, someone probably apply to what we talk about as spiritual. I know some Satanists do, but I think we can all agree that it wouldn't come from any one person, or even that any idea of spirituality in any sense that a Satanist would have, it actually can't come from outside oneself anyway. So uh, there's an idea that Blake had that we still kind of view as today. We can gain inspiration from the outside, but in order to be inspired by something, it probably has to come from within. So, awesome. Blake also makes the point that hell is where the enjoyment of geniuses are. Which, yeah, if you think about it, 
the smart people probably would go to hell, considering how much the church tends to condemn them to hell. He also notes that angels look like torment and insanity. God is compared to the pridefulness of a peacock, and he informs readers that prayer plows not, and prayers reap not. Honestly, at this point, I'm at the opinion that if Blake had not been such a well-received author and was not so well-loved by the English people and his peers, that he would have faced some serious trouble for that quote alone, never mind for some of the other stuff that was in his book. Honestly, it kind of sounds like something someone would say today, that prayer does nothing, and that it's actually the people that have to do the work. I mean, to call this guy brave for saying that is an understatement. However, we're going to see that there's other people later on that are actually way more bold than he is. He even goes on to continue to state that hell is only a state of mind, echoing the passage in Paradise Lost, which he does a lot in his work. He takes a lot of themes from Paradise Lost and brings them back. The problem is, though, Heaven and Hell only had nine copies. And the reason it only had nine copies, apparently, is because the painting and engraving process was incredibly time-consuming, and I'm guessing is extensive. Now, I- I've never heard of the book Marriage of Heaven and Hell before, so I have no idea how critical the engravings and paintings were. So I'm kind of curious if he is sacrificing widespreadness of the work by some sort of prideful project, because we know he loves his engravings and his paintings, or if they were integral to the story. I've I tried to like look this up and do some research on it. I haven't found anything concrete one way or the other. I will say that it's hard to tell. Being honest, it's really hard to tell, and I don't think there's any way to tell if the engravings were necessary, and therefore he should have put that much work in them, or if he kind of shot himself in the foot. So I'm not going to go off on him, even though I kind of wish there were more copies around that we could um, maybe would have made an interesting impact, or, hey, you know what, it might have actually put him in jail if there were more copies. Either way, we're going to move on to another interesting figure of Percy Shelley. This is one of the people that most Satanists have heard about because it's like Blake and Byron. It is on the page of a rather famous book that is extremely expensive, even though it's considered in the TST library and you can find it digitally online. Even the digital copies are over $100, which is fucking ridiculous. Don't get me started. So before I get going on that whole rant, I can tell you just from looking at all the passages in this book that come out of Percy's work, this chapter didn't need to tell me that Percy was one of the most prolific, yeah, that's a fun word, prolific authors of romantic Satanism. I think I would have known that just by seeing the amount of things that are cited in here. He, in fact, has so much work that's listed in here. I'm honestly surprised that he hasn't outshined Milton in the Satanic community. But Milton's the one who gets a lot of credit, and he does deserve the credit he gets, because he did sort of kick off a lot of the Romantic Satanism movement. But Shelley did a lot as well. Like Blake, Shelley was also part of the Johnson Circle, which we've heard about before in the earlier chapters. One of the works that Shelley's known for is in Defensive Poetry, in which he talks about the themes we've touched on before, And Percy takes the stance that Milton Satan is much more moral than God, partly due to the fact that no matter what Satan actually does, he's more moral than God because he is going against a slave-owning tyrant. And I almost feel I cannot talk today. 
that's okay. We're going to continue. But I almost feel like Shelley has more dislike and contempt of Christianity than even Voltaire. And that's saying something. And I think I'm backed up on that statement due to the fact that Shelley wrote a book called The Necessities of Atheism, which of course got him expelled from Harvard. And in 1811, I think he lucked out by only getting expelled. I did a little digging outside this chapter, and holy shit, honestly, it sounds like some of the stuff in this book is stuff you'd expect to hear from Hitchens. Uh, Like, some examples is he cites religion as a major source of violence in the world. Uh, He cites the Crusades, cites the Spanish Inquisition, cites the Protestant Wars. Not only violence, but he points out that the hate that's infusing Christianity is just through the roof. He's seen in his life that a lot of hate in his community has come from this religious mindset. He actually puts forward that he believes Christianity is on the decline. And actually, not to get into it here, but from a historical perspective, Christianity kind of was in the decline. There's a lot of factors on why that didn't happen. But if you look at a lot of historians and a lot of thinkers at the time, they, they thought that Christianity was going to fade away eventually. We can really see this in some of his works, though, when he talks about the um, violence and murderous nature of Christians, which I think might go a little too far. Like, I don't think I'd say that about Christians myself. I can kind of see where he's coming from, though, considering, like, what has happened in the entire lead-up to everything that's gone on in history so far. He goes so far, actually, to call them enslaved, worshipping, violent murderers. Which, again, I think goes a bit far, but when we look at all the wars that Shelley probably knows about, probably had family who died in, and just, like, saw a complete mess being made out of, I can kind of understand it. And honestly, I can kind of understand it now. Like, if if we look at all the things today, when we talk about right-wing extremists, we, we can kind of get so upset we start applying labels that can go a bit farther than we actually want them to go. So we can see these in our own society, that we see all these right-wing extremist groups popping up in the United States. And it does lead some people to say, hey, Christianity is a fucking mess. It's a whole bunch of monsters. And yeah, I completely understand Shelley's opinion because I, I used to have those opinions when I was originally an atheist, like, Early on, I was the classic angry atheist, and holy shit, I was angry. I hated just, like, everything about religion, and, well, I never got to the point where I hated the people. I probably got really close. I think if probably I wasn't around Christians who I actually kind of liked, like, they were still a pain in the ass in their Christianity, because they bugged me about it, but I liked them. They were, they were decent people, and I think if I didn't have that, I might have gone down this road. And Shelley being so just into this language that is just going to get him in trouble, he decided that to avoid censorship in one of his books, he was going to base it in an Islamic country. Because, well, if someone pointed out that it was anti-Christian, he, he could say, no, 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 it's, it's anti-Islamic. Uh, yeah, it's based in an Islamic country. In this book, he actually pushes satanic feminism, which is what the book calls it. And it's basically like putting like females in 
women into the setting of Satan and pushing their story and pushing that they're oppressed and that they need to rise up. He touches on this a lot in his, a lot of his later works, and he has to push back against censorship quite a lot, and that's partly what his works are. But he's also a major feminist from everything we understand of him, and it's kind of cool just to see someone who is that extreme. Like, Percy is just extreme. And then we have Lord Byron. We've heard a lot about Lord Byron. I honestly think next to Milton, he might be one of the most famous. Eh, Blake. Blake is also really famous, but I remember in my history and education courses, because I didn't study English, I had heard about Lord Byron, because he talks a lot about many different subjects. And I'm sure it had nothing at all to do with the fact that Byron loved his revolutionary themes. In fact, it's key in a lot of his works. Though one of his more interesting works that we find out here is um, a book about a protagonist called Manfred. The story itself is basically about a guilt-stricken man who wants to die. He's trying to find some sort of independence from all these supernatural beings while trying to die. This includes God, Satan, a myriad of others. He wants to die in his own terms. And needless to say, it's not the most uplifting of the Romantic Satanist books. He honestly, from what I've understood, this is kind of what Byron's known for. He likes his really down, arrogant, and just anti-heroes as protagonists. He doesn't like his protagonists to be happy. Looking at other protagonists that Byron likes to write about, he also chooses to write about Cain in a poem from Cain's own point of view, much like how Paradise Lost took Satan's point of view. In this version of the story, it's very different than the one we know of in the Bible. This Cain refuses to sacrifice anything to God, and he's kicked out of Eden. After which, Satan comes to him and offers him to live forever. Satan explains to Cain that God is evil. He has set all this stuff up, that he's been enslaved. And Satan explains that it is God that causes all suffering. Satan shows Cain the universe, returns him to earth. After which, having all this knowledge, Cain tries to destroy the altar of Abel because he wants to actually save his brother by freeing him from God. But Cain gets in the way and is killed. In this version, Abel actually begs God to forgive Cain. And we know how that turns out. God, being the arrogant asshole that he is, doesn't forgive Cain, expels him. Come to find out, the whole reason that Byron actually wrote this work wasn't for the story itself. He wanted to make something that could challenge the blasphemy and libel laws. And he just wanted to be, have something just that would probably get him in trouble. And it probably would have got him in trouble, again, if he wasn't so respected and, you know, having Lord in his name. Even though it was a fading title and his family wasn't as powerful as they used to be, I wouldn't be surprised if it saved his butt more than a few times. And the last part of this chapter is we learn about Robert Southey, who wasn't a romantic Satanist, but this chapter explains that he was a foil for Shelley and Byron, as the two felt he was a sellout to the conservative government, and there was a major back and forth between the three of them, which helped build Romantic Satanism as a genre, as it grew more text from them, basically using works and poets and stories to basically go after 
uh, Robert Southey, and he'd reply to them in the back and forth. But yeah, that was a long chapter. It was probably one of the longest chapters we've had so far. And I'm kind of curious if they're going to keep getting long. As I've said, I don't really remember the work that much, and I haven't actually started on the new chapter because I've forgotten the book so much due to reading it fast and then reading so many books after it. And I want to try to keep each chapter self-contained before I get to the next one, so I haven't read it yet. Because I'm going away... Uh, for about three weeks, and I doubt I'm going to be able to make a podcast. Maybe I'll see about recording a chapter or two of this and sort of putting it on a release queue or something. I'm going to see if I can fit it in everything I'm going to do, but that's the end of chapter four. The next one we're going to move on is chapter five. So we start coming, and it's happened. The United States is pretty much behind every other country that has our economic power and vaccinations. And with this, I've been having discussions with other Satanists lately about the idea of a vax mandate. And it's not an easy topic. First off, we actually need to figure out what the hell we're talking about. Are we talking about needing to vaccinate to go places, do things, have jobs, or have certain jobs at least? Or are we saying that flat out you will go to jail or you will get fined? if you were not vaccinated. First off, I don't think the latter would be effective as I don't think there's a legal way to do it, frankly. At least not on the federal level. I've heard some people give examples on how state level it's possible. Morally, as a Satanist, it's tricky. And I know for many, it's a bodily autonomy issue. And I feel that you can be on both sides of this issue and still view it as bodily autonomy. And that's sort of like where I want to talk about this considering we are a satanist podcast surprising yeah i know awesome uh so we will talk about things like bodily autonomy and you know we've heard the thing from the people on the religious right at this point who are saying well isn't it my body my choice well no it's not completely the same argument the person who gets vaccinated isn't putting themselves in danger they're not burdening themselves for the rest of their life And the key part is the person who is unvaccinated infects people who were fine before they interacted with the person who was unvaccinated. So, no, this argument is not the same. Now, maybe if the unvaccinated person never interacted with someone who didn't give their consent to be interacted with, then, okay, maybe the bodily autonomy issue might have some merit. But the autonomy of the person being infected is honestly the one who's being violated, I think. Okay, but both people were unvaccinated, who probably are now ill. They knew the risks, right? Well, that's if we could always be sure that that's the case. Some people, first of all, might not be able to get the vaccination. Now, we do know that this vaccination is a little different, as one of my girlfriend's friends is immunocompromised, and they have some issues there. And they were told that they could take the vaccine, as it was different than other vaccines, and that it would be okay for them. But we don't know this for every case, and it is going to be a person-to-person choice that someone is informed with their doctor. So, no, not everyone who is unvaccinated is going to be the same, because some people are unvaccinated by choice, and they're the problem here. 
And of course, they're not getting the consent of someone who isn't vaccinated because they can't be before interacting with them. The next thing is this could mutate and change to the point the vaccine doesn't work anymore. And it's largely the unvaccinated people who are basically being little variant factories running around and are causing all these mutations. That's just how it works. That's how vaccines work. That's how um, mutations work for the most part. Yes, yes, we, we do have cases where because the virus gets in, doesn't get attacked by the antibodies and mutates because of that, because the ones that don't die off do reproduce. Yes, we have that. And that's what happens a lot with antibiotics. But if a majority of people were vaccinated, then there wouldn't be enough transmission to have that happen. So, yeah, that's not the case. So if you ask me if I would support a mandate that says if you're not vaccinated by choice, you go to jail. I don't know. Part of me says yes. Part of me says no. But honestly, I don't think that's going to help. First off, you can't fine or jail 45% of the country. It's just not going to happen. Placing more restrictions and just making them feel annoyed and pressured is likely what's going to be happening and is probably going to get more usage than just trying to flat out force it. And I'm going to be even more blunt here. My, my compass for these people, my moral compass goes back and forth. One, they're causing a problem but they're also being lied to for political reasons and ratings that frankly, they're being sacrificed and I don't really understand why we, we can look at the data and we can look at everything and see that it's mostly Republicans who aren't getting this vaccine and that they were being told it's the amazing Trump vaccine that he helped make. And now it's bad. Normally I can follow the twisted logic that caused these problems, but I'm not seeing it here. I almost feel like we have to go full reverse psychology on this and tell them, no, no vaccine for you people, right-wingers. You can't get it. You shouldn't take it. We want you all to get sick and die. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's honestly not as ridiculous as some of their arguments that I've, I've seen them bat around about this virus, like microchips and that we made it to kill them or something. Uh, so honestly, is that what we're going to have to do? Uh, do we have to start just finding people left and right? What do we do? I, I Like, this is a mess. I don't understand how you can basically say, here's a thing that is going to save your life. Do you want it? No. Can you say why? Be because ridiculous reasons. I don't know what the solution is. It's a headache and a half for me. I'm actually feel my getting a headache right now. Um, let me know what you think. Again, send me a message at whysatan666 at gmail.com. Let me know what you think because I'm at a loss. Hey, so um, I actually got some questions and emails over the past like month. And I've sort of gathered them all up and I'm going to answer them because... You sent me questions. I don't know why you sent me questions, considering half the time I can't even talk, and I'm trying to podcast. But anyway, thank you for sending me all the questions that you did. If you have questions, feel free to send them to whysatan666 at gmail.com. So if you have a question that you think I should be the person to answer, feel free. So the first question I get is, you keep saying non-theistic Satanism. Is there a theistic Satanism? 
yes, there's, I was actually surprised to hear this. There are actually theistic Satanists. Now, I'm not an expert on them, probably because I've never sat down and talked to one. If you're a theistic Satanist, let me know. I want to know what you believe. And if I get anything wrong here, please correct me. From my understanding, though, they have a few different stances. There's like different types. The first one that I understand is the story of the Bible is mostly true, but it makes God look like the hero when in fact he's the villain. Satan is a rebel against God and is the hero. Uh, really basic, but again, I don't know too much and I don't want to uh, talk about what I don't know about. The third one that I understand is that Satan is more of a pagan supernatural force. This is closer to Wiccan beliefs than Abrahamic. As for the classic evil Satan worshippers, I'm sure there's some somewhere, but it's hard to tell due to Poe's law if they're actually like worshipping Satan or they're just trying to be trolly or what. Again, this isn't all of them. It's not an area that I have much information on. I'm sure I've gotten something wrong. If you know more than I do, please write me in. Or if you want to explain it in your own words, send me in MP3. Actually, better send me a wave because it's a lot clearer and it's easy to work with, even though it's bigger. But if you can't send a wave, just send me it in a way that works for you. That, that works. Either writing, sound, what have you. The next thing I got, which I am curious, the person who sent me this, because I'm, I'll just read it. Why don't liberals like you talk about the problems of Islam? I feel like this is coming from someone who just mass emails anyone they view as an atheist and just uh, throws it out there. But sure, I'll bite. Okay, so first, I've talked about problems that I have with Islam. Not Muslims, much like I talk about problems with Christianity, but not Christians. The reason, though, that I talk way more about Christianity is because that's what affects me. It's what I know and what's most common here. I don't want to talk about my I don't want to talk up my ass about Islam because I'm a good person and it's not really my area of expertise. And there's way smarter people than me who have come from that background who have talked about it. If you want, however, something more concrete, then I can say basically all my issues that I have with Christianity apply to Islam. So anything I say about Christianity, just assume that I'm saying the exact same thing about Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or basically any belief system that could be used to hurt someone else. Again, you can believe what you want, but hey, as long as you don't try to hurt anyone else, we're good. The next question, I honestly wasn't sure how to deal with for a little bit because it's I don't know if it's something I really should get into or not. But I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, they asked me, as a Satanist, what's your view on white privilege? Okay, before I start, I want to get some things out of the way. I am a white dude. I have not really had much in the way of prejudice. The little prejudices I've had is that I'm a little bit bigger. And honestly, I haven't had that much of a problem anywhere about that. Honestly, the worst thing I've ever had happen to me based on my appearance is the fact I have curly hair and I was made fun of in elementary school. That's the extent I've ever had my outward appearance affect anything or my culture. No joke. 
I've been very privileged on that front. So what do I know? So keep that my perspective. My satanic perspective is a simple case, though, of looking at the standards that most Satanists hold. And for that, some people have the tenets, some people have other ones. I'm going to look at the tenets. So we have the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Honestly, in some ways, I like the global order of Satan's pillar on this a little bit better. It states that justice always takes precedent over laws, institutions, religious texts, as long as the pursuit does not countermine the pillars. Basically, it's saying that justice always comes first unless you were doing something else that's wrong in your pursuit of justice. Great. So either way, pursuit of justice is what we need to think about. And white privilege causes problems with that justice. Now, I'm going to assume part of this comes up because of critical race theory. And much smarter people than me and people who have been more impacted than me have talked about this. Go check out YouTube. There's so many smart people who have talked about critical race theory. Now, I can't talk about most white privilege. As I've said, I haven't been harmed by it. I'm not a person of color. I am not a minority. I am the majority. Other than my religion, which most people don't see, it is not something that anyone can see about me. I am the majority. And what that means, and from everything I've learned, that means I have privilege. And what I've learned, I can use that as an ally. The best explanation of white privilege that's ever been given to me comes from a friend of mine who was talking about a white woman calling the cops on a black woman saying she was being attacked. And I'm going to kind of go through the conversation. Not word for word, but I'm going to go over it. A white woman knows she can call the police and claim to be attacked by a black woman and get a response. She will get the response that she wants. The cop will come to her and likely side with her. The woman knows that one, this is going to cause stress to this woman. It's going to cause fear. Two, if the cops show up, there is a greater than none chance that the black woman will be arrested, harmed, or killed. The white woman knows the cops are less likely, statistically, they are less likely, statistically, to believe the black woman. The reverse of this being a black woman calling the police on a white woman, they are statistically more likely to have the police turn on her. It is statistically more likely that her calling the police on an actual attacker will go wrong for her. This is not debatable. It is a pure fact. You can look at the numbers. That is a fact. Now, that is how it was explained to me. And honestly, that was probably the most clear examples of white privilege that I've understood other than economic. Like that, when my friend explained that to me, like, I don't know how long it was ago, but it like made my mind explode. I'm like, holy shit. I didn't really think about that. I like, I somewhere in the back of my mind understood it, but like it wasn't there. The fact that it's more likely to get abused for just recording the police or shot for pulling out a phone. That's something that as a white person doesn't happen to us. And we, a lot of us would love to change the system and the people being abused would love to change the system. But honestly, sadly, white people 
kind of a better shot at talking to other white people about it. It sucks. It's stupid. It makes no sense. It's, it's racist, frankly. But that is an area that we can use our white privilege. I remember during the George Floyd protests, the media wasn't really covering them. And this is fucked up. They weren't really covering them in mass until we saw what? What did we see? We saw white protesters protesting. That's when the media said, oh, this might be a thing. Really? Because white people said it is? And you're ignoring the people of color who were saying this is a problem. Yeah, that, like, me thinking about it, like, I remember when it happened. And part of it was because I've noted before, I watch Fox News sometimes, and it drives me insane that Fox News said, oh, well, we have people who aren't uh, black who are now standing up. So, hey, maybe this is something. And this is not any of that bullshit that, oh, white people need to save black people. No, that's a load of bullshit. That's the whole European saver bullshit. It's utter bullshit. And has caused more problems than anything else. It's part of why we're fucking here, to be honest. It's how white settlers justified themselves. It is toxic shit. But white people can't deny that we have privilege. That is not something we can deny. And most people look at it, oh, economic, right? That's what you mean by white privilege. Because that's the talking point that people who are racist push. They point, well, there's a poor white, so it doesn't exist. But that's not the only form of privilege. We know for a fact that when a policeman is called, that a white person is insanely less likely to be shot. That is not anything to be debated. We know that for a fact, yes. You can find statistics where it says, well, technically, there's more white people that are shot than black people. Yeah, do you know why that is? Because there's more fucking white people, you fucking dumbass. Of course. But if you actually look at the numbers and account for the majority and figure out, like, the math and the ratios... It's gigantically skewed that white people are less likely to be shot than any other person of color would be. So as a straight white dude, the only thing that I can do is be an ally. I can use my white privilege. And my friend pointed out something that made my brain go, Bleh? they pointed out that even on social media, I have privilege. No one says that I should be enslaved on social media. I've never once been told that I should be lynched. I'm never having my whole existence being shut down with a racial slur. So my beliefs is yes, as a white guy, I have privilege. And if nothing else, I can both acknowledge that, understand it, and use it to the best of my ability to help destroy it. And I think that is probably the best place to leave this episode today. Thank you very much. And as always, this has been Why Satan. And hail Satan. I have no idea why, but whenever I actually go to record this podcast, I get incredibly nervous. No idea why. You guys are awesome. 